I've seen it, I've experienced it, but me telling people is of no benefit to me whatsoever, because whether they believe us or not, it's not important. I know what I've seen, and that's just important to me. That's the first question. Did you take a photo? And so it immediately puts you on the defensive, because when you say no, people say, well, it didn't happen. You're on the back foot of what's your little story. Welcome to Big Cat Conversations. We speak directly to people who've encountered one of Britain's big cats. We also discuss the bigger picture. I'm Rick Minter, and thanks for joining me. Welcome to episode 74 of Big Cat Conversations. This one is coming out in early May 2022. For this episode, we'll be hearing about events in the two Sussex counties, East and West Sussex, in south-east England. And those areas are very heavily wooded, but they also have long stretches of hilly chalk downlands, areas of heathland, such as Ashdown Forest, which is the setting for the Winnie the Pooh stories, and of course there is lots of coastline and some coastal marshes. To guide us through the Big Cat reports of these landscapes, our guest is the experienced investigator Charlie Bones, and he's been on the case for around 20 years, networking with people and with witnesses across East and West Sussex. So, Charlie, hello, and great to have you on the show at last. Hello, Rick. I've known you for around 15 years in this business, and although you and I have chatted over many things over the years, I've actually never heard about your Big Cat report. So here's a chance right in front of, of all yes. our listeners. And also, Charlie, I presume this is what got you going on the topic in the first place. Did you know anything about big cats before you had the sighting? I had a passing knowledge. When I was um, a teenager, I worked up on a, an estate in Northamptonshire, and there was a chap there, this would be uh, mid-80s, and there was a chap in the village there who had a black leopard that he let out at night. We were all on the estate under strict instructions not to disturb this cat if we saw it anywhere else. We also had in the mid-80s wallabies running around that escaped from Leonard's Lee and, and stuff like this. So it wasn't a big thing. However, when I had my sighting, that was it was actually quite shocking to me at the time. It really thought, well, hang on a minute, this is something else, what I've seen. So... Can we quickly just go back to the one in Northamptonshire that was let out at night? Was he sort of semi with it? Was he walking with it and it was habituated so it stayed with him? How did that work? We'd get invited. The chap had like a mini screen in a shed um, in his garden and he used to knock up this pachine type homebrew stuff. We'd all drink it in there and then he had all these home movies and stuff going on. And anyway, he'd then, as a party piece, show us his black leopard in the cage. You weren't allowed to go near to the bars. He'd he'd say, oh, no, it will go for you. It was okay with him, but it obviously wasn't wasn't like a cuddly thing, you know, that you see from these clips in the 60s and stuff. But he'd let it out at night, and it would come back in the morning and then have its food. I vaguely remember him saying he never, he didn't feed it, so to encourage it to come back, he'd feed it when it came back. We'd see the paw prints very occasionally scattered around because it roamed on quite a wide area. Yeah, and we were just told, don't have anything to do with it. It won't go near you or anything like that. Just, you know, just leave it. It was a secret thing. The people in the village knew about it. I think what happened was they were, they were meant to either find a home for them um, when the act came in or um, they were meant to put them down. And a lot of people said, well, we're not going to do, we can't do one and we're not going to do the other. So This one wasn't licensed, do you think? I don't know. I don't know. Um, if it was, they would have been able to track it down. Or so. I, I just don't know. No, it wasn't the biggest of things. You know, you always assume them to be absolutely ginormous things, but they're not, wasn't that massive. Also, Charlie, it got your eye in. You knew the shape and the form and the noise and the behaviour and the jeers of um, a black leopard as a result of that. Yes, it would plod around. You'd see it pace around and down the cage. Um, it's got a fair, I mean, a fair size run, but it wasn't massive. To get an idea of the movements. Yeah, when I came back to Sussex, I was only up there about a year or so, and there were fairly regular reports coming in 
in the press and, and people would say, oh, we, we saw a big cat. And I'd oh, great, you know, um, I've seen one in a cage. You know, it's just one of those things. Brilliant. Yeah, I didn't know about that with your background as well. So what was the year, what was the date and year when you had your sighting? That was 2000, October 2000. The reason I can remember the date specifically is because, let's see, days prior to that was the floods of October 2000. And we had these massive floods in Sussex. Lewis was completely underwater and vast stretches of the weald. Most of the weald is at sea level anyway. And so if you can imagine, most of inland Sussex was underwater to some degree or other. And I actually had to move off a farm I was at near Henfield due to the floods. And I'd gone up to this next farm that was owned by family members. And this was on a more of an undulating ground. So I was there doing a bit of work on a hedge. I had three whippets at the time that were with me. They were off a lead. And I was working away in this hedge, sorting out these trees. And I looked at them and they were looking intently ahead. I thought, well, what are they looking at? And so I looked the direction they were looking at. There was a cat. The first thing I thought, my God, that was a really strange-looking animal. And also, the other thing that was surprising was that they didn't go for it. Anyone who's kept whippets, their instinct is to chase small things. But this wasn't a small cat. This was fractionally larger than they were, about 20-odd inches tall. And this wasn't one of these leopards, even that other people had described that they'd seen locally, this was something else. In fact, very much looked the way they were, quite whippety in shape, streamlined, very leggy. The rear legs, they had like a jacked up appearance and a very long, whippy tail, a small head, small ears, very athletic, and and I was like, you know, well, that is not what I was expecting ever to see. I mean, even now, I do get these reports coming. They say oh, it was greyhoundy in appearance. It could just be a little bit thinner than something else, you know. But you don't <laughs> don't expect that type of thing. So yes, what colour was yours? This was black, just jet black, with no undercoat at all. It went up a chalk track that was on this farm, and it was catching shade and sunlight as it moved so I had a fair good look at it I went to put my dogs on the lead because uh, I still was not 100% sure they weren't going to run off and that's when I looked back up again this had gone this cat it was heading up towards us but along the track so it, um, it would have gone past some way anyway they were on the lead um, tied to a spade and then I went to where I'd saw it head which is a very thick wide hedge um, I mean this was a farm that had been left derelict for over a year so the, the old crops were over a year old of stubble and these hedges were very overgrown and when I got to the hedge which is where the track ended I saw this cat crouched inside the hedge staring up at me as I looked at it we caught eye contact with each other it then momentarily stared at me and then bolted through the hedge. Small rabbits were darting in and out of the hedge as it ran all the way through inside the hedge and ran off. Was it the size that could take down a deer? No, not that I would assume. I mean, maybe. It didn't seem that sort of size. It it had the appearance of something very young. You know, I worked on farms of various sort of stock over the years and you get to sort of know what's a young animal what isn't you know they just have this sort of carefree but confident manner and you know they they just had that air about it so i've always assumed it was just a very young cat maybe maybe it hadn't finished even growing it i don't know but very athletic had no idea that we were there but obviously when i went across the field it then it knew exactly what i was about and very very afraid Got the hell out of there. Nothing domesticated about this at all. Yeah, this is just wild, as wild can be. Nothing like I was really expecting ever to see. In fact, up to that point, I thought, well, I'm always out and about. I've never seen any of these leopards that are around that everyone's going on about. 
and then I'll finally see something and it's not what anyone else described. What were your emotions then and afterwards? How did it make you feel? It just completely surprised. I can remember going to a pub later on and a few days later and talking to some people about it. I mean, no one questioned that I'd not seen something. I remember someone saying, oh, well, we haven't got any photos. Well, I said, I didn't have a camera on me. And even if I did, the last thing I would have thought of was to be start taking pictures. It's something that grabs you, your attention completely. My second instinct was to make sure my dogs weren't running off after it. Like I say, this is right after the floods. A lot of inland Sussex underwater. There wasn't a lot of space for it to go. I mean, it went up in the downs or, or to somewhere undulating where there, there wasn't a lot of water about. But that evening, I, I was on a, I was in my caravan on, in the yard, the farm. You could hear a whisper at night. It was quite still. And my dogs, you know, they're up about something. Poked my head out of the door. In the yard, I heard coming from from the farmhouse area, which is where the, the lane come up, which is funny enough, that chalk lane came from where it was sin that day, I heard this really loud screeching noise. I thought, what the hell was that? You know, obviously I did some research and the nearest sound I could get that to be was uh, a mountain lion. Since then, I've heard reports of people saying, well, we've heard roaring sound and coughing like a leopard. Okay, well, that, that fits. And I've also heard this screeching sound, you know, and I thought, well, that does sound like a mountain lion, but they, then the only sightings that have been going on at the time have been of these black cats. What would you have said the nearest thing you've ever seen in a reference book or on Google Images to what you've seen was? I poured over this for countless hours. If you add it all up, all the evidence, it really could have come from a domestic cat. It wouldn't take too much of a stretch of imagination to imagine a domestic cats to have bred up to that size. And in fact, I've seen and I've got trail camera photos of domestic cats that are quite a size. And in that area. Well, we'll come on to a DNA result that you and I were involved in in a minute, actually, which backs this up to some extent. Before that, what about the length of the tail and the ear shape? Are there any other kinds of form and characteristics of this cat that help give a clue to what it might have been? Did you notice the length of the tail and the ear shape? This is the weird thing. The tail was ever so long. Domestic cats haven't got a long tail, really. Yeah, proportionally. Yeah. So this was an extra long tailed animal. The ears were quite set back on its head. They weren't very big at all. It's just quite a dainty animal, really. It was very tucked up on its stomach, you know, just like a whippet or a ground is. You know, long-legged, thin, sort of fine-boned, very much an athletic sort of animal. An animal that looks purpose-bred to chase rabbits. I've done a lot of research with the, um, the breeding side of things and how many generations would it take to get a, if you've got a domestic cat, to get it to an animal like that. Some people are coming up, well, it's going to take many generations. But when I've actually spoken to breeders, they're saying, well, we could probably get that down in as little as 15 to 20 generations. And I'm saying, well, even with the tail length, and they're saying, well, maybe, maybe not. But but even so, it doesn't take that much breeding uh, to, to change an animal drastically in shape. It seems a lot of these feral cat colonies well, that I know of, they're attached to farms that have a very high sort of prey base that are usually rats. I can think of another one in, in Littlehampton where there's, to this day, a very large number of feral cats that live there. They do seem to be bigger than normal cats, much chunkier, but their prey are the rats that live off the farm. This other feral cat collie, they're attached to another farm where it's very messy. The type of food that are given to the cattle just attracts rats. They live in the wood, birth their litters in the woods, and they go to and fro into this farm, catch rats, and that's what they live on. Um, and that supports them. They get to be like fox size, but yes, nothing bigger and nothing more athletic in size. 
Now, with the cat that we're talking about, I can only assume that this is adapted to hunt rabbits. Maybe the bigger ones have got bigger and they're, they're also catching deer. But then, of course, it wouldn't be anywhere near a farm at all. So, okay, so you've got feral cats. Their prey is the rats that are off a farm. And then you've got this other type of cat that is living mostly off rabbits. I also don't think this is too much of a stretch of imagination or evidence to think that some of these much, much bigger cats that people uh, are coming across and seeing, that they're also describing them as quite grounded in appearance. And they're of a different appearance of leopards. Those cats are more attuned to taking down prey the deer. You and I were party to a DNA result, a privately done DNA test, which was a big bit of scat, a big dollop of poo, came back as Felis catus, and we were absolutely dumbfounded because it was the last thing we were expecting. And it was absolutely pure Felis catus, and the lab just said, you know, that we know that your sample is surprisingly big and you weren't expecting this but we're just giving you the science it is felis catus and we were sort of scratching our heads but it may play to your theory that you're unraveling here i mean it does i mean at the time so had the sighting come in this is a horse rider and she's in this big cat with a pigeon in its mouth i couldn't get there at the time and this researcher knew near there he went and then found this pigeon that was plucked and had been eaten, and then also the scat. I said, let's get this scent off. It's of the right size and get it DNA tested. Then you've then got the sample and then got it tested. It was as good a thing as any. The witness had seen the cat with a pigeon. We found the pigeon. It had been plucked and eaten, probably by the cat, and then we found the scat by it. And this was literally the next day or something, so it was very fresh. And that's what really opened my eyes to the possibility of this mutant mog theory as well. And of course, that one was a pure felis catus. We've had a couple that were similar, really, suggesting very large cat sample, but came back felis catus or felis catus stroke something else. So that suggests, well, are they pure felis catus? Are they pure domestic cat? Or is there something else bred into them as well? We need more samples for this, but uh, so I think there's a case, you know, for saying, well, not all the large black ones that potentially could kill a deer are necessarily black leopards, and we've made that point on the podcast before. But it's very nice to have your your examples on this of your sighting and this particular DNA result. So back to your sighting, Charlie. How did that change your life at the time? Because I gather it did. It really sparks, you know, some proper interest. Well, this is something that's really interesting. You know, this is something completely out of the ordinary. This isn't just something that can easily be explained away. Before that, in fact, very near where that pigeon uh, with the cat with the, had the pigeon in its mouth, very near there, previously to that, maybe a couple of years before, I was with a chap and we found on a winter born stream in the middle of winter, we found a cat paw print, not a leopard size. This was much, much bigger than a domestic cat's paw print, but not a leopard size. So that is something else. So, you know, and I thought, well, hang on, this is something that's, this is really interesting here. So I thought, well, I'll actually put some work into this and find out more. It just grabs you from there, really. And you set up a website and you started networking and taking reports from the two counties of Sussex. It took another 10 years to get a website together. I was working on different farms. You end up having a, a large network of people, you know, to contact. And also there was a couple of markets as well. You'd go and all this sort of thing and the ploughing matches and stuff. So you'd chat to people all the time and they'd say, oh, he's interested in big cats and stuff. And we'd tell him and literally it was word of mouth. And then you'd end up getting a mobile phone and all this sort of thing. So. The website thing came much later on, I think 2010, I think, or something. So, And what kind of trends of cats were you getting reported? Quite a lot of different descriptions. I think a lot of it also is to do with the coat. 
in the winter, a cat would have a much thicker coat, which would disguise its body shape. And then in the summer, they'd molt, and then they'd have a much smoother coat. That makes up a lot of the differences, you know, in the sightings. People say, oh, it was very woolly and fluffy coated. You know, I don't really see, think of leopards as having very woolly coats. But the trend has always been 10, 15, 20% mountain lion-ish to sort of 80, 85% black leopardy type black ones. We used to get quite a few link sightings throughout Sussex, really. They then started to confine themselves more to the Ashdown Forest area. I've got two or three reports that I know about from Sussex to ask you about. One up a tree. You said you had one up a, a tree at one stage. Oh, yes, that, that was a memorable one. Just down the road from the farm where I was at, where I originally had that original sighting. So this would be in about 2011, 2012 or something. I was putting leaflets up everywhere. I had my ear to the ground. I, I was talking to dog walkers, doing seasonal farmers. I had a lot of time on my hands at that period. Anyway, there was a cat that was moving around the South Downs near Stenning, Lansing, and then going up to Cowfold, all that sort of area. And it seemed to be coming around in a loop and spending a week in one place and then a week in another, that sort of thing. I was at this farm and I heard this a lot from people. And they'll say, we haven't seen a cat, but we know one's around. There's a whole different mood change in the area. The rabbits don't come out so much or they don't stray far from their berries. The foxes have disappeared. This sort of thing, and you get a feel for it. And I felt there was something around. At the time, we had very cheap trail cameras, which weren't a lot of good. So that week, I, I thought there was something. And I get this chap for that. He was the manager of the local campsite. He said, look, can you get down here? He said, um, I saw a big cat last night on the campsite. Anyway, so I ran down there to see him, and he said, last night, he had three or four cats, you know, pets, and he'd, he said, oh, I heard outside the sound of about several cats fighting. Only one of his was in the, his static that he was lived in. So he poked his head outside, popped this high-powered lamp out, and he saw this big cat out in the field. That place actually had a lot of rabbits there. He said, it had this light shot on it. It said it was huge, which tallied with the reports I was getting anyway at the time. And he said it, it ran off into the hazel copse and it got up the tree. Anyway, I said, oh, which tree was it? And so I've gone there. Funnily enough, other people have said, oh, we've seen cats go up trees. And I end up thinking, well, they seem to be saying that they're going up the similar sort of trees. Now, this had quite a ribbed bark with moss on it. And it was a gradient to the tree as it went up the trunk. If you imagine the easiest sort of trees to go up quickly would be the ones that didn't go straight up vertically, but went off at an angle and had moss on them. And anyway, I had these, um, there were some claw marks that I photographed and put on my blog at the time. And that did tally at the time as well with the reports. There's quite a big cat going around. When you're going around uh, after a sort of a hot sighting like that, you're just looking for anything and picking anything up. And I found this badger skull. I had no idea that a badger would be on like a, a cat's target list. Anyway, I picked this badger skull. I've got strange. What the hell's this doing here on a campsite in the edge? And I got in touch with Jonathan McGowan, um, who you've done a lot of work with. I spoke to him and I said, Jonathan, um, have you ever heard of cats going for badgers? Because this is a completely new one on me. And uh, he said, oh, yes. And anyway, we, we made several accounts that he'd heard of. I then also found out about what sounds like several cats fighting in the countryside. And apparently, as well, a badger, when it's being attacked, sounds like several cats fighting. <laughs> so it's all of like, I thought, my God, you know, this, this is all, you know, more new stuff to find out. So... When you have the trail cameras, the camera traps set to video and you get a, a badger having a sort of kerfuffle with another one, that they, the noises are quite threatening and, um, and impactful. But how did you know your skull was not a badger died of natural causes? Could have been, couldn't it? I don't. I mean, it was very fresh. 
but I'd found it. It is circumstantial. It's like um, foxes as well. I would also, at the time, I'd find fox carcasses laid out in the country. Now, this would be March or April time. Sometimes they'd be eaten, sometimes not. There isn't much, really, that would eat a fox. Again, this is fairly new to me, and I'd find out, well, what does actually eat a fox? Uh, and there isn't a lot. I mean, even wolves, when they take out foxes, um, they're in their territory in America and stuff. They don't eat them. They just leave them there. I was quite often, I've, I've got the photos, you know, these foxes have been eaten. And strangely enough, it also occurs at a time when there's a very late rabbit breeding season. So if various weather conditions in the winter have, have put a check on when the doe rabbits come in season to breed, so it would then delay when the young rabbits are born later on, there would then be not so many rabbits, baby rabbits running around, which would be easy prey for a big cat. You know, it would then think, well, if there's not much prey around, maybe they do turn to these foxes. We do see some really filleted out fox carcasses, don't we? Could you describe the fox carcasses you were coming across? They generally matched the deer that have been eaten out and a lot of assumptions have been made that they have been caught by cats and the ribs are chewed back, the back legs have been eaten and they're sort of half-skinned a lot of the time. The guts are pulled out and put somewhere else. We did DNA one of these fox carcasses. We swabbed it and got a DNA result, and we just got fox back. And again, the lab result was saying, well, make of this what you will. We're not suggesting it is cannibalism necessarily. Then it could just be the fox result is reflecting that was the animal, the host animal. Had there been a different culprit, big cat or whatever, we didn't get that on the signal of the swabs, which happens. You know, it's hit and miss when you're swabbing for saliva of the culprit on a carcass. But at least we tried anyway. Yeah, I think it's quite hard, really. If you're getting stuff like saliva off a car, I think it's got to be quite a hard task. I was listening to uh, a forensics person on on Pumas in uh, America the other day, and uh, she was saying that uh, the best place is to get right into the canine impacts if it's um, clamped at the windpipe, clamped its prey at the the windpipe, you know, find those, and often you have to skin the prey's carcass to get those canine puncture wounds, and then, you know, put your cotton buds right into those canine impacts. Yeah, so, so very interesting I mean, the prey, we'll talk about rabbits in a minute, I know, because you've got a point to make about the ebb and flow of rabbit populations, how that might influence cats' behaviour. But another couple of uh, sightings. What about sightings at the coast? Have you, I mean, I've got one that I don't think you know about uh, from Quentin Rose's files that I've got here. But have you had any reports along the Sussex coastline on on the beaches or anything from people? Probably one of the most interesting ones was of a mountain lion near Eastbourne. So very near Beachy Head area of the of the cliffs, the Seven Sister Cliffs. And this was by um, a tourist. Uh, she was an American woman. She had parked in the public car park and got, gone for a walk along the cliffs and then come back inland a little bit more. So she was a little bit off the beaten track. And she saw this mountain lion. And I said, did it look exactly like what you'd expect a mountain lion would look like? And she said, well, look, I'm, in, I'm an American. This didn't look exactly like what we'd normally expect to see. There was something different about it. She couldn't quite put a finger on what it was, but there was something different about it. But she said it, you know, it was a wild animal. It was very muscly and, you know, very confident and fit, and sure of its, itself, where it was going and stuff. She saw it. It wasn't that far away. But yeah, she was, it was absolutely 100% a mountain lion. Now also, strangely enough, not yet, but every year I get mountain lion sightings from that area of the South Downs, which is the end point of the Downs as it goes uh, east. And I don't know, year in, year out, I usually get one or two mountain lion sightings. And that year was no different. There was two or something other mountain lion sightings that that summer. Whether it's the same one or not, I don't know. But yeah, there were other sightings going on at the time. I mean, that's another thing to do 
look out for is one sighting on its own is great, um, but we're specifically looking for clusters of sightings in an area at a similar time. It adds weight to weight to all the others. Of course, because they don't know about each other's. Well, shall I do my, my coastal one from Quentin Rose's yeah. files? Yeah, as, as I think I've mentioned before that I, I inherited the late Quentin Rose's files from his father, looked me up and passed them on to me. And he died in 2002 in a case where he had sepsis, a bad case of sepsis, which wasn't spotted early enough when he was in hospital. And unfortunately, he was dead within 24 hours from that. And he was investigating Big Cat reports with MAF, the Minister of Agriculture's knowledge and, and support, and some police constabularies in the the late mid to late nineties and up to two thousand two when he died. And one of the reports he got was a guy contacted the Sussex police first, and then con- they were told to contact him because he phoned in a panic because he saw this animal swimming off the coast. <laughs> When he returned to sort of look it up in, in reference books, it was a, a puma, mountain lion, and he, he just thought it was in trouble, so he phoned the police. He, he didn't have a mobile phone at the time. He went back and, and said, you know, I saw this large animal swimming. And, of course, it was probably fine because, as we know, pumas can swim, but it was a remarkable sighting. You know, the first one I know about of one seen swimming, uh, he said it wasn't far out, but he thought it was getting into trouble and he thought it should be rescued. <laughs> it was a escaped zoo yeah. animal or something. <laughs> but there, there you go. What, what a sighting. And so he contacted Quentin to tell him all about it, but wasn't much Quentin could do. But it was an interesting report. Just shows you. Yeah. Just was there a location? In- uh, yeah, I can't remember, Charlie. Uh, but it was certainly in the east. It was well towards Kent. Yeah. But of course, I think a lot of the time they might be on beaches or headlands on rocky parts. I know you don't have rocky coasts. It's more of a soft coast in the Sussexes. But there'd be at times a day and in places where people wouldn't see them anyway, unless you're in a boat off the coast a bit. But they would like some of the cliffs and the overhangs and the uh, and they would forage, I suspect, along the, sh- the shoreline, washed up rich pickings. So, yeah. Now, another one uh, I want to mention that is in my book, a photo in my book by a lady called Carol. You knew her at the time. And she was a nurse, and she worked shifts, and, and so she was uh, at unusual times. So she was walking on the downs, I think it was, up in the, the chalk landscapes, very early dawn. So she has seen this big black leopard-like animal before. And so she, she took her, when she was dog walking, so she took her little portable camera with her in case she saw it again. And about a month later, she did she sent me the photo and it was a bit of a blob of a photo so I said can you explain what happened and it was so plausible she said it uh, she was very very nervous she had her little terrier dog I think it was on a lead and was very cautious because she was pretty scared but she had the camera around her neck she thought right as soon as it comes as close as as it gets I'm gonna take a photo and she only took one and she said when it heard the camera shutter it looked up and uh, bolted away. Now, I'd heard somebody else say that for, from a photo that was taken that's in my book in Shropshire. Mm. So because I've had two people say that and be very plausible and it's consistent about you know the, the, the cat not being aware, really, or suggesting it wasn't aware or not, not bothered by the human, but suddenly you know hearing the camera shutter and, and then looking up and then bolting away... Uh, this is a classic photo where I think it is very plausible, so I was happy to put it in my book with an explanation. But it's it's yeah. a photo that some people would say it's, oh, it's a shape that you're inventing as a cat because you want to, you know, so it's people's bias. Well, I understand that, but I think you can see the form, and I think you can also see the long tail tip and the head. And it's one of those ones I've noticed when I show it to people, I would say half people get it immediately and say, wow, that's good. And, and they completely see mm. it perfectly they go with it half people just say what you're talking about where where is it there's a funny shape there but i don't you know you're inventing it as a cat so what what's your take on that because you you knew carol at the time yeah i mean her photo um it is a bit like that it is a bit is it or isn't it type of thing and what i do know she wasn't the only one i was getting other sightings at the time which i don't think i even told her from there so a cat be moving around the country, it would maybe spend 
a few days or a week. I don't know what you found, Rick, but in one area, um, and then it may move on several miles to another hunting area where it can lay up. So it lay up somewhere, hunt that area off. The surviving prey will get wise, and then it then moves off somewhere else. From where I was, which is 12 miles away, it's too far, really, I think, to imagine that a cat would lay up near where I was and then hunt the night where she was, say, 12 miles away. It stands to reason it would then move off to, to a lying-up place where it wouldn't get disturbed in the daytime and then hunt there. Of course, it would then get near to a town and then it wouldn't go much further, but then that would be the place it would get sinned more regularly and of course i was getting more sightings from witnesses then anyway so very good she was certainly a very credible witness and and you know a sort of intrepid lady and uh, sort of ready for it because she'd seen it before and hoping and she had the sort of nous to actually photograph it so i think it's a plausible photo it's a talking point anyway if we can get it onto the website for this edition i'll, I'll do so if uh, you or i can track her down and ask for permission we set up a new Facebook group, and um, I think she's joined that. Though I haven't actually directly contacted her, so... Good stuff. OK, well, I want to raise another photo with you now that I know that you're not allowed to show other than, you know, in the pub to people and that sort of thing, but I know you're not allowed to circulate it. And it is one of the best photos I've ever seen of an alleged big cat in Britain. I mean, you know the backstory to it, and I know because it's sort of a sensitive one and, and it was given to you in confidence, and you know all the, the background to it, you can't go in full detail. But can you tell us the gist of it, this one of a leopard-like cat that's actually in somebody's garden and was photographed from the property? Can you tell us what you can about that one? The build-up to that was there was a cat going around that matched this cat's description showing up in daytime. I mean, some of them... They hardly ever get sin at all for one reason or another. And then other cats, I think, I'm sure they just, they're around a lot in the daytime for whatever reason. I was getting these reports in that area or leading up to that area. Then I got another report from a witness from that general area, which is the north of Sussex, Surrey borders. Anyway, I'll get this report that's come in. It was, the chap was actually out of the window. He took the photograph with his phone. It was going towards the house. It's got it's quite a large garden, and it's immediately knew that what it was, and and I think you can see the the coat undercoat, can't you, Rick? In it, yeah, it's more like a normal leopard, not a sort of black melanistic leopard. More like a normal type one. Yeah, this is exactly what you would normally expect people to report if they were to say they've seen a leopard. This is dark, but it caught the sun. And you could see the undercoat, the mottled undercoat underneath, and also the, the sort of hockey stick tail coming off. It's a shame the head isn't completely in, I think it's the tip of the head's in shadow or something. It is what it is, you know, it does look like it is a leopard. The witness as well, absolutely credible witness. Um, he gave me a proper account. He was actually a cast iron type of person. He, he said it was gone in, into his garden, went to the side of the driveway up to the house, and then it was in the longer grass, and he managed to reel off a couple of photos, the best one of what that he sent me. Now, he'd got the police, Socko, scenes of crime, two officers to come over. There was various reasons. I think there was a school nearby or children or something. I can't quite remember. But anyway, they, they showed up never found a trace um, not a single trace no fur no paw prints nothing i don't know what they expect to find because they don't it's very hard to find paw prints off them anyway they thought it was good enough for them to show up and he was a guy of high status in, in life a high sort of public standing i mean again we can't give his identity away but good that you got trusted to have that photo and you're obviously not allowed to pass it on but if people meet you in the pub it it's a great photo to be to be shown i mean the, the tail alone when you send the tail but someone looked at the tail and i think they said the angle of the tail is absolutely nearly spot on for what a leopard how a leopard would carry the tail is to swearing it's a leopard's tail so yeah 
One other one on, on my list, and I just thought it'd be nice to talk about Winnie the Pooh Country, because I know we have overseas listeners to this podcast, which is great. And everybody knows about Winnie the Pooh and the heathy, pine foresty landscape where Pooh and, and Eeyore and Piglet and Tigger hung out. And uh, it's Ashdown Forest. Now, apart from Ashdown Forest, there isn't much heathy landscape in Sussex, but it's a big area. And I was chatting with a, a senior ranger for that area, and he said he, he was going to meet Ray Mears, the TV bushcraft presenter. Ray Mears met him at the edge of Ashdown Forest for, for what they had to do, and, and he said, uh, on introducing himself, Ray Mears said, do you know what, I've just seen a jungle cat, Felis Chouse, which of course is not that big a cat, but it's still a very interesting cat, and we do get them reported sometimes, like a sort of fox-sized cat, like a, a, mm. a, a male fox-sized cat. I'm allowed to mention that Ray Mears has seen big cats because he's mentioned it himself in the media, that he's seen three different types, and that would have been one of them. So there's one report from Ashdown Forest, and we know that Heathland, like Exmoor, has got more upland heathy landscape and the Dorset Heaths and uh, Canuck Chase, you know, that kind of landscape with lots of scrub and pine trees and, and conifer trees and woodland edges is, is perfect for ambush terrain for deer. What about your contacts? Have you had reports from Ashdown Forest area? Ashdown Forest is about late May time then into June. So it would be before the bracken is completely full tilt in June, but particularly late May, but then you would get them cut running across the rides on the forest. It's, um, it's a number of different cats. So I'd have, I mean, I'll go through back through the sightings records and you'd get a Labrador-sized black cat with sin, such and such, and then a mountain lion with sin somewhere else on the forest. And uh, and then another one would be uh, like a greyhound-sized black cat in something else. And also the lynx as well. I think lynx is the last place I've got for sighting a lynx. It's the Ashdown Forest. I put it down to the fallow deer, fawn drop, which is around, you know, around June. And there's massive amounts of, of fallow deer up there. It's a big place anyway. And also, it's not just there, but there's other forested areas near the Ashdown Forest. So that whole area's got a huge amount of deer. They all tend to drop at the similar sort of time. Um, and then that would attract different cats in, you know, from around the county who probably could just migrate there for this deer drop. And that's what happens in the native countries of these cats, of leopards and pumas. They go for the neonates, the, the newborn of their prey. At, at the relevant times of year. That would be a time to use trail cameras in these kinds of places. But, of course, it's a big, open, extensive landscape, so very difficult. And, of course, there's public access and dog walking and other uses of that open heathland. So you'd need permission and everything. So very difficult to catch up with them. But I think that's entirely a relevant kind of deduction to make, that they are after the, especially if it's that time of year, if it's May, June time of year, that's exactly when the, the, the young are being born, and they would target them, certainly, yeah. But there's a lot of deer in that area. I think one stretch of the road, uh, what is it, the A22 or 26 through through the forest, they've got a deer counter, collision counter up. It always numbers like one a day. And I often wonder whether the, the cats are attracted to wounded deer or even the deer carcasses if they're in the forest you know it does make you wonder that's been raised on the podcast before and raised you know by my contacts of mine and witnesses of mine that people assume especially if there's regular road crossings where there are regular casualties you know a cat might wise up about that and think right you know an easy free meal yeah. once in a while the thing about ashdown forest i know it's called forest but it's open heathland a lot of it it is where you could actually physically view a cat more easily in the landscape because the uh, Sussex landscapes got some of the highest cover, woodland cover, of any of Britain, actually, in, in Sussex. So a lot of that woodland is so dense and extensive, it'd be difficult to see a cat. It's a bit like the Forest of Dean here in Gloucestershire, although we get good big cat reports. I always feel it's a difficult place, actually, to see a, a cat unless you're quite up close in that woodland canopy situation. Anyway, we're going to talk about our word of the week now, Charlie. Our word of, words of the week is the wield. 
and it's from the old English word weald, meaning forest. But you're going to tell us that the weald part of Sussex and East and West Sussex is actually quite open, some of it. The weald is the area in Sussex, the, sort of the middle landscape between the North Downs, which is the upland sort of hilly, chalky area, and the South Downs, which goes just sort of north of the coastal stretch. And in fact, the downs themselves is a weird word because they're upland areas. I was looking up last night and thinking, why are the downs, which are hills, called downs? That word comes from the uh, old English word dun, D-U-N, which actually means hill. So dun has been changed into downs. And we heard in our France edition from Michael, who's in North France, that that weald and downland landscape actually goes across the channel into mid-north France, where he is. He's based in the North Downs in Surrey, but he's seeing that same downland and weald and landscape when he's over in his property in in France as well. So he's seeing it from both countries. And you've got a view about how that different landscape affects the movement of the cats based on the reports you've got. Yeah, yeah, there is um, there is um, some chalk expanse in North France, isn't there? Sussex has got South Downs on the coast. It's chalk. It's well drained. And I have got a theory that cats, especially in the winter, much prefer undulating and well-drained ground. They wouldn't want to traipse around in mud during the winter. Just north of the Downs, Mid-Sussex, is the weald, the classic clay weald, which is river valleys, streams. Most of it is at sea level, even 12 miles inland. And in winter, it's muddy. There's a, a real distinct lack of cat sightings on the weald in winter. You can get early cat sightings on the weald in, say, a very dry January when it started to dry out much earlier than normal. And you, you strangely enough, then start to get big cat sightings on it. But they're, they're obviously spending their winters somewhere else. Although we do get the odd winter sighting on the South Downs, most of the sightings are actually on the higher ground, which is the high weald, which is north of the classic weald that everyone thinks of. This is actually a, a much larger expanse of semi-upland, undulating, very deep gills and valleys, very wooded, much poorer ground from a farming point of view, but there's long ridges of sandstone through it, which makes it much more well-drained. It's great for big cats to move around there's no mud they don't seem to like mud you know any of these cats probably why you don't find a lot of the paw prints so over the years i've plotted out all these sightings and they do tend to avoid the muddy coddy areas during the winter and stick to the higher undulating ground that's well drained in in the winter it's good if you can use your sightings database you know for that sampling and I guess you're cautious about these conclusions, but it does show you the value of a trend going over all the years, showing you this fairly consistent pattern, which you can relate back to the landscape. So that is interesting in itself. Now, you've also got a theory about the ebb and flow of the rabbit populations through time and how that could influence the cat's distribution. I've collected sightings from a number of different sources over the years. You know, the other big cat groups as well and, and other researchers have all contributed to my files, but there's distinct lack of sightings from the 60s and the 70s. So if we sort of discount, okay, there's no internet and maybe not so many people discussing these things with the press, say, or whatever, but even so, there's not that many sightings. When you get to the 90s, there's an explosion of witness reports, press reports, the whole shebang, you know. Then the 2000s again, and it's almost like every other person's seen a big cat wandering <laughs> around and stuff. They're always so common. Also, if you look at the prey base, if we think, well, so they target rabbits, say, for argument's sake, they target rabbits. They're like a bread and butter for them all year round. And then the deer, I think they mostly go for the deer in the winter and then the young in the summer. In Sussex, at, at least, there were very few deer, any deer, around. Definitely pre-war, and then after that, reintroductions of deer, of roe deer and fallow, from the big deer parks, there was just no deer around. 
Then we had the great storm of 87. It just swept through Sussex. It decimated the trees around everywhere. But what this also did was it opened up the canopy in the woods. You then got a lot of low brows that came up for the deer, and they literally they exploded in, in number. Various sources can be quoted on this. We got to the stage by the 2000s of literally therefore, well, hang on, we've got to quit called Massey deer. There's so many. Also with the rabbits as well. 1953, we had myxomatosis come along. That just wiped out 98% of the rabbits. And again, in the 70s and 80s, rabbits were actually quite rare in a lot of places. You didn't really see them around. Then they, you started to see numbers build up in certain places, especially the finer bits of ground that were more drained, you know, the sandy sort of areas and stuff, and on the downs. By the 90s, you've got pretty large numbers of deer everywhere, pretty large numbers of rabbits, and then also we've got big cats around, mountain lions, black leopards, lynx. It does tend to go with the theory that their main diet all year round is rabbits when they can get them, then also target at least the bigger cats, target the deer. In 2012, we had in Sussex rabbit hemorrhoid disease that came in that spread from Kent. Now that wiped out our rabbits as well. That's slowly spread around the country. The following year, we've had a lot less big cat sightings as well. Uh, and year in, year out, we've had a lot less, maybe a quarter to a fifth of the normal numbers of sightings come in. Big cat sightings are virtually non-existent in certain places in Sussex. You just don't get them at all. And yet in the 90s, they were commonplace. There may be other factors which are influencing the reporting and you receiving and you hearing about the reports. So I think you've got to be careful that you don't, you don't hang everything on the reporting. No, no. That coincidence of the, the rabbit and deer population dynamics and the reporting of cats is, well, it is a, it is a very st- strong correlation, isn't it, as you're suggesting? You're right, it could be other factors, but it does make you think, this is it with this whole subject, really. You, I think you have to just gather everything you can in of whatever evidence you can get and then draw some conclusions. But, but you've always always got to listen you know, to the other arguments. So, well, you know, could it be this and could it be that, you know, so... Be cautious. There's likely to be some correlations and we've just got to understand them as best we can. And the best information source we have at the moment are the sightings reports. And obviously we have to wait those and see how credible those are as well. And that's why a good network like you've had over the years in Sussex is so important. I mean, a lot of your contacts are people who are farmers, farm workers, people who work on the land over the years. What kinds of attitudes have you picked up from them about the big cats? A lot of farmers say, oh, well, I've just seen a big cat. They do have a massive fact air about it. But when you actually talk to them, they're, they're just like everyone else. This is a, an amazing thing we've just experienced. And uh, generally, anyway, so, and it is something they will not forget. They're not horrified or intolerant or up in arms about it, like, like some people would expect. No, I mean, at one time I was really trying to find out about this sheep thing, you know, whether they went for sheep. I was convinced at one time this big cat was, was taking down sheep. I was really looking into it a lot and I was finding out any shepherds I knew and asking them and several of them had seen big cats, you know, and they'd seen them at lambing and, and all this sort of thing. And I have yet to found, I've never found one that said, no, big cats are a problem for them. And they are, I think probably they are the ones that have got the most to lose. They are. I mean, if you, someone's livelihood is lambs being born and they don't really want, you know, <laughs> something taking them off of them. Yeah. Mass killing. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether I've mentioned this on the podcast before. Apologies to listeners if I have, but in local to me, there is a guy who was a former farm manager on the Sussex Downs, and he said it was probably the largest sheep holding 
on the Sussex Downs and he said about every two years they might have one or two ewes that were dead and eaten out and assumed to be big cat related because he said they were so different and he said we weren't getting big cat reports but but just by looking at these carcasses we assumed it was a big predator like a big cat and he said what distinguished these carcasses was the distinct lack of chaos and that those are the words are used which is great you know we, we mm. say it's surgical or clinical in the way they take down and eat their prey his words were distinct lack of chaos in the scene yeah. But he said they were totally unbothered about it because it was, you know, one or two every other year. And so hardly yeah. touching their their huge flock. He is more fascinated, interested and wants to keep in touch. And so there we go. Yeah. We're running short of time, Charlie. Thank you ever so much for all of this. Uh, it's been lovely to um, hear all your experience and uh, hear about the, the Sussex landscapes. It's great time to you, Rick. Yeah, yeah. Now... We enjoyed uh, meeting up with some people, including some podcast listeners, about six weeks ago for a pub evening in Sussex. And we heard a couple of witness reports, a nice sort of evening together. And it was all because um, a young student called Max is making a, a little documentary featuring you in it. And it's just nice to help young students, you know, on their way, especially if they take an interest in this subject. Can you tell us about you working with Max and uh, what, what he's producing? Yeah, it was great to get involved with his project. He's doing uh, like a, a documentary. It's for their dissertation. It's for the university course uh, from London that they're doing. Uh, yeah, it, it's great. The thing is with this thing, we, we get approached by media. So people ring me up. They say, look, I'm a journalist for such and such. Can I do a story? Yes, etc." I'm a filmmaker. Can you? Um, so, and I say, if I can, I say yes. We need the oxygen of publicity because this is as much a people business. Max's film is going out to festivals and things, but the film, the filmmaking thing is good. As far as my point of view. Obviously, you want the right kind of approach to the subject, a measured and professional approach and treating it seriously. And I think Max was terrific. We were both impressed by Max and wanted to help him. Funny enough, I've contacted him yesterday, Charlie, and asked him if he could send us some updated blurb about his project that I could mention on the podcast. And as we're speaking, about 10 minutes ago, I had an email pop through and I can read it out, actually. And he's obviously doing it as a submission for his university course, but they're allowed to actually push it out on YouTube or wherever for the rest of the world to see. Oh, right. Yeah, which means we're even more careful about helping them do it as well as they can in this situation. So here we go. Here's the email he sent. I'll extract from it. Black Cat is the working title. I know you and I actually had words with him saying, well, they're not all black, but he wanted to focus on the black ones and the, and the panther and leopard type reports. So here we go. Black Cat, searching for the Sussex panther. Sightings of large black panther-like beasts have been continuously reported across the county of Sussex for over 50 years, but their existence is still unproven. The film takes a new look at a story generally mishandled and misinformed by the tabloid press. Instead, the film is on the ground with real people and real stories, following local witnesses and British big cat investigators, giving them space to uncover and contemplate the mystery for those that are brave enough to grapple with it. In terms of timing, he says the film is almost finished because I guess he's got to hand it in as his uh, end of year degree project very soon now. And the film will begin its campaign and festival release in June. Screening at short film and documentary festivals across the country will happen, as well as online screenings and premieres. Look out for promo and more info about when and where to catch it at Black Cat UK Film on Facebook and Instagram. So we'll keep people posted on that when we can. And good for Max for doing this. Before we sign off, is there anything else you'd like to quickly mention? What do you make of the whole subject, Charlie, being involved for, you know, 20 years or, or more? What's your take on where we are with Big Cats in Britain? You know, what, what do you make of it all now? People tend to think, oh, well, is there a conclusion to this? And I don't think there is. There isn't. This is what we do. We research what these cats are up to. We would take a more scientific approach or we take just a more people interest approach or whatever. This is just something that just goes on and on. You know, we're just finding out more and more that we can 
I don't know, you cannot quite put your finger on it. Um, but a bit like the cats, I think. It's just, um, you know, what are they? <laughs> Where are they? Yeah. Um, and the same about this this subject. You know, why are we doing it? Do you know, I don't really know. I just know it's just something you just keep doing. And it's just, yeah, just very absorbing. The process of learning, we shouldn't expect to have a conclusion or a resolution easily. It's just, you know, it's going to be an ongoing investigation all through our lives. I've spoken to a lot of people over the years, and very often there seems to be this undertone. Well, the conclusion is once someone gets this perfect picture, <laughs> that's it. It's all sorted. Or once we've got a DNA test of a carcass, that's it. It's game over. And I say, well, well, no. My interest, like a lot of people's, like your interest, Rick, and a lot of other researchers, is actually in the cats themselves. You know, what are they all about? That is just something that just goes on and on, you know. You know, none of us are getting any younger, and I'm sure we'll be handing the baton over to probably, you know, another small core of researchers, you know, as we are now, you know, and this will just, you know, they'll be finding out more and more and such. So, yeah. Well, it's also good that you stay with it because I think you can help bring new people on and support people like Max who are doing it from the arts and culture and, and communication side because we obviously need good media communication. So we need to work with people from that side of things as well. Is there anything finally you wanted to say, Charlie? Think anything we've not covered that you think we ought to just quickly mention? It's great doing the podcast. They're a good thing to do, actually. It's something you can just listen to, you know, wherever you are. So, yeah, they're a great thing, and it's great to, to get on get on one. Brilliant. Thank you. Great to hear from you, Charlie, at last. Thanks so much for all your experience and wisdom on the Sussex situation, and so thank you so much for being on Big Cat Conversations. Yeah, thank you. Thanks, Rick. Okay, just to recap what's on the Big Cat Conversations website under episode 74, we've put some links to the former blogs that Charlie did in the past because they're still live on the web and Charlie feels some people might find some interesting snippets within those. There's also the new Facebook site called simply Big Cats in Sussex for those of you who want to check that out. If you're listening to this on schedule in May 2022, you'll find a link on the website to a 45-minute Big Cats feature that I helped with for BBC Radio Gloucestershire. That came out on 30th of April and it's available to hear until 28th of May 2022. It's got the usual mix of discussion, some listeners' queries and some witness reports from the Cotswolds and from the Forest of Dean. It's also got a bit of input from Alan who runs the Forest of Dean Big Cat Facebook group and amongst other things you can hear how he's doing with his new thermal camera. So, thanks to Radio Gloucestershire for their continued interest in the topic. Righto, next time our guests are big cat witnesses who were on respective train journeys when they noticed a big cat. We have a train driver and a train passenger talking about what they noticed out of the train window. We thought we'd compare their experiences, especially as train journeys might sometimes afford opportunities to get glimpses of a big cat. After that, we will have a guest and an update overview from Scotland. That one will also include some link sightings as part of the show. And just to say we are scouting for an episode for Southwest Wales for later in the year, so any pointers or suggestions would be welcome for that one. So we can represent that area at last on the podcast because it certainly had a history of credible reports. And as always, any other suggestions are always welcome. The email address is rick at bigcatconversations.com. In the next two or three episodes, we may not always hit our two-week interval target, so please bear with us, but we will get these episodes out as soon as we can. Okay, we are signing off now, so thanks again to our guest Charlie, and thank you everyone for listening in. Take care of yourselves, and bye for now.